JavaScript fatigue. This phrase has been used to describe the confusion and exhaustion around the volume of different tools required to be productive as a JavaScript developer. Frameworks, package managers, typing systems, state management, GraphQL, deployment systems. There are so many decisions to make. In addition to the present-day tooling choices, a JavaScript developer needs to watch the emerging developments in the ecosystem. React.js is evolving at a rapid clip, and newer primitives such as React Hooks and React Suspense allow developers to handle concurrency and networking more robustly. Tejas Kumar works with G2i, a company that connects React developers with organizations that are looking for high-quality engineers. His role at G2i is head of vetting, which requires him to assess engineers for their competency in JavaScript-related technologies. Tejas joins the show to discuss the modern stack of technologies that a React developer uses to build an application. Full disclosure, G2i, which is where Tejas works, is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Tejas is also speaking at Reactathon, a San Francisco JavaScript conference taking place March 30th and 31st in San Francisco. And if you like this conversation, then you can hear more from him at Reactathon. It's in San Francisco, and it's got a lot of great JavaScript speakers. You can also hear more podcast episodes about React by listening to the Reactathon podcast, which is available at reactathon.com/podcast. Tejas Kumar, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, happy to be here. I want to start by getting some historical perspective over the last six, seven years of React. React came out, and it was just a view layer, and we could still describe it that way, but it has had downstream impact on the rest of web development. What have been the downstream impacts of React? So Laurie Voss um, did a really great talk at JSConf EU last year, where he kind of shared a lot of insights based on NPM's data. And one statement he made was really profound. He said, React has dominated the web, right? That's a downstream effect, if I understand the question correctly. I think the biggest effect and really the most profound is that React brought this like simple yet extremely clever component model to the web, which was desperately missing it at the time. I mean, you think of jQuery, prototypes, Cryptaculous, all the stuff that came before, and there was coupling and, you know, it was very hard to refactor like a large scale application, even the backbone and marionette back in the day. Um, and React just brought this component model that now, you know, people have adopted even Angular and Vue. And I think that honestly is the biggest effect that React has had in the web industry. I think of the React ecosystem as it's a demarcation point in post-Rails web development. And that's not an entirely fair description, obviously, because Rails is a fully-fledged framework for building a web application, and React is just a front-end that sort of had all these downstream impacts. But the fact that it's open-ended that has really let the web take a different direction than the Rails ecosystem. Do you have any perspective on how that open-ended nature of React rather than the out-of-the-box experience of Rails, how has that affected web development? 
Well, I can tell you how it has affected me as a web developer and all and, and many, if not all of my peers, right? And this is not just my peers who work with React, but my peers who work with Angular and other kind of, I don't want to call them frameworks, although Angular is a framework, but you know, you get the idea, is that the open-endedness is has kind of been applauded by everyone as being this thing that cultivates community. You know, because of the open-endedness of React, we see things like React Router, we see things like Emotion, very popular CSS and JS library. Even, you know, I've made a few libraries just to solve some problems that are not Reacts to solve. And so it kind of gives an opportunity to other developers to say, hey, this is an amazing project, an amazing ecosystem, and I'd like to contribute to it. And I don't need to contribute to the core. I can still contribute by virtue of like a library or something. I also think in keeping it open-ended, React has really modeled a fundamental principle of software engineering that I really appreciate, which is the single responsibility principle. Because React, like from the get-go, was just meant to solve one problem and solve it really well. I don't think, I, you know, I, I may be wrong here. Jordan Walk might correct me. You know what? I, I don't think it was intended to be created to solve all the problems like authentication, like routing, like, but no, it's just solve one problem and solve it really well. And it does, you know, and, and the other, the other problems, it's, it's pluggable and modular with things like hooks where we can chime in, but it does what it does and it does it well. So I think that is something that has also influenced the way I, along with my friends create software is we usually will now create these units that do their job and their job well and then integrate them. Whereas in prior times, it was, you know, Wild West, Cowboy Land. Today, there are React-centered frameworks. What role do the React-based frameworks serve? That's, that's, I love this question because my website, my personal website and my blog is built using a React framework by some friends I really respect and appreciate. Um, the people over at Zite. So my friend Guillermo and Tim Neutkins, Neutkins create Next.js. And it's, you know, it's this framework, right? That really just solves a whole bunch of things that I know how to do, but I don't really want to do them. So I don't want to configure Webpack. I don't want to set up like a routing structure. I don't want to set up server-side rendering. Like how cool would it be if I could just like create a new project, create a pages folder and put my pages in there? And then it magically becomes either a static website or some server rendered thing based on the content. Well, that's that's what the framework does. And I think that's amazing because like I, I could build, I actually started working on um, a website for my mother-in-law, right? And it's just, I, I create a new folder, pages, put some stuff in there and it's just, it, I don't even have to run like next dev even. I just type in next in the terminal and I spin up a local dev server. Mag it, it's so magically. So I think to answer your question, I think these frameworks really bring the magic and they do something that really React tries to do and does well and succeeds. Like React tries to abstract the DOM and web APIs away from people. So they write React components and then React does the rest. React renders it to the DOM, React diffs and, and all that jazz. So you can essentially focus on the product you want to build. You don't have to think about DOM APIs. You don't have to think about events. You don't have to think about updating certain parts of your app. You don't have to think about optimizing them. And I think frameworks take that approach and follow it to say, hey, you can focus on building your product. You don't need to think about dev tooling. You don't need to think about server rendering. You don't even need to make the decision if this should be static rendered or server rendered. Like all that's handled 
you can just create your great thing that you want to create, right? And I think that's what they solve. Right. So you've touched on two sides of the development process that they help with, the getting started boilerplate side of things, as well as the scalability side of things. And I think the boilerplate side of things is, if I was a React developer when React first came out, or I'm like a new web developer when React first came out, I hear that React is is the thing to do, but I don't know enough about web development to really piece together what should my backend be. I mean, you know, people tell me Node, but, you know, I, I don't know. And, you know, on, on the later stage side of things, React helps with scalability issues, which might be manifested in the server-side rendering question, like where am I rent when am I rendering my pages? Can you dive a little bit deeper into each of those things? So you have on the one side the beginner, the I'm just starting a new web application boilerplate side of things. And then on the other end you have the I'm a later stage React application. I need to figure out how to scale my application. I need to think about server-side rendering. Take me through each of those sides of the development process and how the frameworks help with that. Sure. Yeah. So when you, you know, I, I actually mentor a ton of people on Twitter, like we'll, we'll talk over DMs and we'll kind of figure out the best way to do things, or at least the best way that I can see that we can see together. And, you know, if you're a beginner and you hear React's a thing, how do I do it? it you pretty much go on dev.2 or, you know, medium and go, hey, uh, how do I, you, you search for a blog post and follow it. Or actually this happened as well. A friend of mine just found like a GitHub repo that was like a starter kit. And and just cloned it or used create react app which i don't know if create react app qualifies as a framework but it is a boilerplate right and they do that you start it and then you can just create components and then it's a matter of following the react docs creating components and so on and i think the frameworks really compete in 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 a sense if you know what i mean with with create react app because frameworks do what create react app does but more. So I think in terms of the boilerplate stuff, I don't see that much value from frameworks. I think the bigger value comes from the later stage stuff, which, you know, if if you've, even if you're a beginner and you've built something, you have a boilerplate, it's working and it starts to get traction and suddenly it's huge and you're seeing millions, billions of hits. How do we handle the scale? And that's where the frameworks really shine, particularly Next.js, because when you couple it with, and this isn't like a paid placement or anything, I just have a deep respect for these products. Um, when you couple it with Now, which is Zeit's cloud solution, it literally, you don't have to care about scale. I don't have to care, like my website's built this way. I don't care about scale at all. Like if when I hit thousands, when I hit millions, like it just horizontally scales. For the static stuff, it uses a CDN and places static assets on edge nodes. And for the server side stuff, it I don't even know what it does really, but I trust it and it works. And all that to say that the frameworks, they, they take this complexity away from me. So I can just focus on creating content that my friends appreciate. Let's talk a little bit more about the specific frameworks. So we've been talking about frameworks in the abstract, the the two that I know of that are the most popular are Gatsby and Next.js. Tell me a little bit more about how these two frameworks, what their market segmentation is, what problems they specifically are built to solve. This is a really good question because I was thinking about this recently. I was thinking about if I was to take something huge like MDN, right? MDN's got like tens of thousands of articles on pretty much everything on the web. 
if I was to rebuild it from scratch, this is, by the way, this is how I learn. If I was to rebuild it from scratch, what would I use? Would I use a framework? What framework would I use? Would I use Next? Would I use Gatsby? Would I even use some type of view framework? And while thinking it through at scale, at, at, at like a huge wiki size type situation like MDN, I think I wouldn't use Gatsby in this case. And the reason for that is because I don't think Gatsby was created to solve that problem. Now, I could be wrong and somebody will tweet at me probably saying I'm wrong, but um, from my experience, to my best knowledge, Gatsby doesn't seem well suited to that solution because it is a static site renderer, meaning it will traverse your files, your articles, and with linear at best complexity, one by one, will output one-to-one HTML file, like static files that go on the cloud. That's great for like small to medium size websites. Um, and that's, I think, the what Gatsby is better suited to. Um, whereas for a problem of this nature, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of posts, I'd probably choose a different framework. That is Next.js because it intelligently can tell the difference between static and server. And it does, I don't even need to make this decision with Next. Based on my code, it knows. And at build time, we'll decide to either build static assets or build out a server that then serves content. And I think, so for example, I have a friend, Monica Lent, used to work at SumUp. That's right, SumUp. And she was a front-end tech lead there. And, you know, she often dealt with scale. And at scale, they had a static site system that would take hours and hours and hours to build because the because it had a lot of content, um, and so for that reason, I think it's it's faster to have an API pull one article from a server and serve it to the client. So server rendering in that case is better. So all that to say concisely, um, Gatsby is great for static sites, small to medium size, and Next.js for things that tend to have more content. It seems to be where I land on this topic. I want to talk through more tooling in the stack of React-related software. The bundler, things like Webpack. What is the role of a bundler in a modern React application? That's a... It's to bundle, right? Like I, I recently, for an internal tool we're building at G2i, I actually had to build a bundler myself, which is cool because I got to learn how bundlers work. And I think, you know, in, in the context of modern React and in, outside of the context of modern React, a bundler is is pretty much what it says it is. It's something that you give it an entry point. So in the case of Webpack, you write your Webpack config and you say, hey, this is the entry point, right? And then what it'll do is it'll traverse, it'll, it'll look at the imports of this thing and say, okay, he need or she, or it, needs this file, this file, this file, and will create what, what it calls a dependency graph, ultimately combining the results of each graph in the right order in one file. So effectively bundling all of your dependencies in one place. I, the real challenge here is figuring out what depends on what and then you know bundling them in the right order. Because if something's not defined when you need it, then your app crashes, right? Essentially, that is what a bundler is and that's what a bundler has been. And to this day, that's with React or without, that's what a bundler is. Is there a reason to use a bundler other than Webpack? I think, you know, the web is rich and diverse. And I don't just mean rich with money, mind you. Then it's diverse and there's tons of use cases and things. And so absolutely, um, even if I don't see it yet, 
I'd say absolutely. Now with Create React App, you do you just get Webpack out of the box, right? So by default, most React apps would have Webpack. But I have some friends over on the Chrome team who put together a project with Preact and deliberately chose not to use Webpack because it has certain limitations with modern ECMAScript modules, or so I've heard. And so in this case, they opted to use Rollup. But personally, what I'm really excited about is a project called Snowpack, which I don't know if you've heard of Snowpack. It is an incredible project. It, it aims to use, so it, it creates a folder for web modules that are just plain old modern JavaScript ES modules and uses those instead of like node modules and common JS style. Meaning you can lazy load and tree shake and actually ship modern real JavaScript to your users. It's kind of scary to think about how much non-standard JavaScript we're shipping to our users at scale, but Snowpack's solving that problem. So it's very exciting to watch. When you say non-standard JavaScript, what do you mean? One example I can give you is like imports, import statements, local imports, like import function from, and then you, you specify a relative path, like in double quotes, dot slash my file name, right? That is non-standard JavaScript. Like it's, it's, this is to the best of my knowledge, it's not in the JavaScript specification, but these local imports are a Node.js concept. So like in the world of web JavaScript that you ship to a user, you would, it's extremely unlikely, if not impossible to have local imports. You would always have absolute paths, even specifying a protocol with modern real, so not rather standard JavaScript imports would have absolute import paths. That's one example. So we've grown accustomed to like this hybrid Node.js style situation, which is non-standard JavaScript. And so I think we'd all be a little bit, well, better off using modern JavaScript. For me personally, as a developer, it doesn't really make a difference one way or another, but from the user's perspective, I think they would be served better. Why is TypeScript used in React applications? TypeScript is used in React applications in order to make, com um, to make refactoring a little bit more comfortable and to really help them scale better. So I've worked on web applications for years for a very, very long time. And until I started using TypeScript professionally, I had literal nightmares at my job about deleting code or about trying to refactor something because I had no idea what it would break. And oftentimes things would break. I needed the safety. And so TypeScript, like before the project even builds, will tell you, hey, just so you know, this thing that you refactored broke this other thing that you weren't even thinking about right? And so that code will not compile and I'll, I will not ship it to my users. So TypeScript really saves me as an engineer and also saves the product or company that I'm working for. And that's because of basically type safety together with a compile time step? Yeah. So TypeScript is a superset of JavaScript. So it's, it's very much like JavaScript, except it has just a little bit of extra syntax. And the other thing is it's compiled ahead of time, right? JavaScript's compiled in time. So if you go on a website, you know, you, you download JavaScript, you execute it. That's when your JavaScript is compiled, like on the fly. TypeScript is compiled when you run like yarn build or NPM run build. 
And so it's, it, it is your, like compiling TypeScript is your build step, which will fail if you're doing something illogical in your code that you don't yet see. For example, if you have a comparison, like if, like an if statement, and if you're comparing effectively, if true equal, equal, equal false, right? Like if you, if you're doing a comparison that will always be false or always be true, but it might not look like it to you because you're using variable names and you can't decipher them. Uh, TypeScript will tell you, it will literally straight up tell you, hey, this is illogical. I'm so consider deleting it. And it'll tell you that before your project builds using static type analysis. So effectively TypeScript sits on your computer and literally just watches your code as if it was some type of code stalker. We discussed server-side rendering a little bit earlier. This is something I'd like to get in deeper with you. Applications can be rendered on the server or rendered on the client. In some cases, you're doing a combination of the two. How should a developer weigh the options of client-side versus server-side rendering? This is this question hits really close to home because I recently had a lot of conversations with people criticizing me on the internet for using GitHub as my backend for my blog and server-side rendering everything instead of statically building. And the argument was always, hey, well, static, you could, um, you know, put it on a CDN. And then I said, great, that's amazing that you can do that with static. But like, I made the decision for server-side rendering because I actually compared both of them, like static versus server-side. And my key decision maker was the time it would take to get it to my users. I believe that should be everybody's key decision maker is can my users be happy with this or not? And so if if it's going to take like 30 seconds more to get something to my users with server-side rendering, then I would choose static without even thinking about it. In my case, it took it was a deviation of like three to seven milliseconds, which doesn't really mean that much, honestly, to me. So I was really comfortable choosing server rendering because I was like, this this is before someone even blinks. But I think that's, yeah, that's that's how I would choose typically between server or static is how fast can I get stuff to users? But also, of course, the other factor is how much stuff do I have to build, right? And so the other reason I chose to server render my blog, for example, is because I foresee it grow. I tend to talk a lot. I don't know if you've noticed in the course of this interview um, or in the course of this podcast, but I foresee my blog, you know, crossing 100, 200, 500, 1,000 articles over the course of its lifetime. And if a static site generator has to build each of those into HTML files one at a time, I don't want to sit and wait for that, which is why this is the other reason I chose server rendering. So I think those two for me are the biggest factors. It's worth pointing out that today we have better tooling for doing this. I mean, you go back, whatever, five, 10 years to Heroku or deploying stuff directly to AWS, Elastic Beanstalk, whatever you didn't really have a whole lot of options. I think most of the time you were just shipping your JavaScript framework like Backbone to, I, I could be wrong, but you're shipping like Backbone to the developer or to the uh, to the user yeah. and the user's browser has to parse all the necessary JavaScript to have the framework load and then have the framework interpret the the, the custom framework code on their, their browser which just contributes to significant load time. Today, we have tools 
that can do this on the server side. And we have cloud providers that even tightly uh, integrate this server-side rendering into their the way that you you develop your application. And you know you have the, the uh, commonly referred to as static site hosting. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think you've done more web development than I have. So so maybe you can give us give us the state of the hosting providers and the tooling for doing server-side rendering. Explain why this is more of a conversation point today. Yeah, I think it's it's more of a conversation point today because of the I call it the serverless movement. You know, everybody's talking about serverless. Everybody's talking about Jamstack, and it's really interesting to see how really serverless or Jamstack solves kind of the same problem that React does. So, what does that mean? I mean, the problem that React solves is you build your pro- you focus on building your product, not you know the DOM APIs, right? Um, similarly, serverless, in this case, static site hosting, not functions, but static site hosting, solves the problem of you focus on building your product or service and not where it lives or how it scales or how it's served to your users. So in that way, they saw, and I think that's why it's a talking point. It's this thing that facilitates rapid development and can be monetized very well. For example, if I was to start a company, you know, I would just go on like AWS or Zite or Netlify or something or Heroku, um, probably not Heroku because I, it's serverless. I don't have a server. You know, I would just sign up, tell it where my GitHub repo is and bam, it's in the cloud. Now, this isn't a problem for me because it's all free in the beginning. And when I start to actually see some traction, then I pay them, right? And they can charge whatever they want with, within reason. And so I think they monetize it and they get they, well. They effectively run their businesses, and I um, get my product in the cloud. I think that's the main reason why this is such a talking point. It doesn't really solve the problem of shipping like you know a lot of code and then a framework understanding that still happens. Like for example, React will still download onto your browser, and then the React app will still download onto your browser and talk to React and so on. But the problem space has gotten way simpler because we don't need to think about servers anymore. I will say, though, that it is also faster because the speed in which, if we were even shipping Backbone today, the speed in which it downloads could be significantly faster because these providers, these cloud providers, would store these assets on you know something called a CDN node or a content delivery network where they can cache them and just serve them significantly faster than if they were to load fresh every time. So that's the benefit. But ultimately, it's all solving the same problem of make things simpler for developers and get stuff to users faster. You did point out the increased role of the CDN in uh, today's web development, the idea that we're rendering these applications on the server side and then pushing them out to the CDN, and then the user is accessing them directly from the CDN. Does this introduce any complexity in how we're creating our applications because if if you have this additional node that that is participating in the the development of your application it seems like it's harder to have an entirely consistent experience for the end user because you know if i write a comment to a blog and then that blog needs to that that comment needs to be posted to the, the blog's back end, and then, you know, the blog needs to do some server-side rendering, and then the blog needs to, to serve that server-side rendered application to the CDN, and then the CDN is what serves it to the other user that would be reading my blog. Does that create any consistency issues? 
It does. And I I don't really know what the solution is to that, to be honest. I, I have been looking at, at a database. I've been looking at FaunaDB because one of their big marketing points is immediate consistency, right? And so if you were to talk to to their DB via uh, an, an API, it would be faster. But I, yeah, for sure, there could be consistency issues there. Um, Wait, but what, what would that even do for you? I mean, that's just that's just a database consistency. I mean, we're talking about consistency between a CDN and the actual like cloud provider server that's doing the yeah the rendering. Correct. This is this is a problem space that I actually haven't worked in yet. It's definitely interesting, and I know I know Phil Hawksworth um, at Netlify did a talk about this at uh, a, a conference in Romania last year. The the videos on YouTube, and I've been I did watch it live. I've been meaning to go watch it again. But this this stuff really interests me, and I'd love to understand it better. Me too. I, you know, one thing I don't understand is like so I did a show about FaunaDB, and like it seems like a great consistent database. What I don't understand is why the Jamstack people like it so much. I, I mean, I, I'm, do, you, do you know anything about why? What it, what does it do outside of like what you would get out of the whatever DynamoDB, whatever other database I would take off the shelf? Yeah, that's a really good question. So funny thing, I've been kind of just playing with Fauna. So I haven't, I don't have it in production, but I've been playing with it, and it's apparently based on this paper that talks about modeling data for scale. And that's what I'd like to understand more. It looks really academic and interesting. But for me as a Jamstack person, the value I see in Fauna is the developer experience. Like I create a database, I populate it, and bam, just like that, there's a GraphQL API that I can connect my you know Jamstack app to. Um, and I think that's the that's why Jamstack people like it so much is because it's just it's simple. It's kind of like the same reason Jamstack people like Netlify so much. This I know for sure is because when you go on Netlify.com, you click a link, connect to GitHub, set a repo, and then you're live, right? It's that simplicity that I think the Jamstack people tend to appreciate. It's also similar to why I think Hasura is so popular. It's because without any work, you point it to like a Postgres database on like. Amazon RDS, and you have a GraphQL API. Um, I think that's what we tend to appreciate. Right. So it's probably some developer experience, some part of the developer experience that I wouldn't understand if I didn't build an application with this thing. Yeah. Like I, I, I got, like I was playing with Fauna Shell and it's, it's literally, you just type create, you know, you create a table, you create blog posts, and just like that, they're available via GraphQL API. I've done absolutely nothing except write a blog post. In, inside of a like function call and it just is there like i think that's the value so you mentioned hasura hasura is a graphql on database tool uh, i think it helps you design your graphql schema such that you can talk in graphql to a postgres database or that was at least like the first use case maybe they branched off into other things tell me about GraphQL usage in the React ecosystem today and and the state of GraphQL tooling? I see a lot more GraphQL usage in the React ecosystem today than I did just a few months ago. And I haven't actually looked at the state of JS survey, but I'm sure I would be very surprised if it said something different. Man, GraphQL is here to stay. And I think, you know, I did a talk about this recently. I think the reason it's here to stay and the reason it's growing in popularity is because it is nothing more than a specification. It's kind of like you asked me about the open-endedness of React earlier in this in this call. It's kind of like that. GraphQL is just an open-ended document, right? And it says you implement it however you want to. Um, and so people like Apollo, 
Hasura, even Prisma took some liberties and were like, okay, great. We have a specification. Let's go. Let's create products. And so with that, we have some amazing tooling available in the React ecosystem. We have, I to this day, I use Apollo client in production and it is a dream. Like I wrote a subscription today and it's just real time, just like that. And, you know, speaking similarly of tooling with Hasura, personally, it is a dream come true because so it, it has actually nothing to do with GraphQL besides the API, which I really love. Like with Asura, it's more about Postgres than GraphQL. So you, you configure it, you point it at a Postgres database. It can live anywhere in the cloud, locally, whatever. And just like that, literally magically, it all maps to a GraphQL, data, a GraphQL endpoint, um, which you can then query. And you can choose what in your database you want to track and what you not what you don't want to track, right? So you can expose only certain tables to your GraphQL API. And that is just pretty bananas if you think about it. That is just that simple to set up. More than that, it also works out of the box with GraphQL subscriptions. So like you could create real-time data. Like I, I showed this to my company, G2I today, like, you know, because we work with developer profiles and so on. And when somebody gets a job, we want to know, right? So we have numbers of how many people are currently occupied with clients and how many people are currently free, ready for hire. Um, and these numbers are in flux often because people are getting hired or people are completing projects. And we literally have this now real time. Like you don't need to reload your browser window. It just like you keep the window open and the server will push you new numbers using GraphQL subscriptions. And Hasura just magically wired that up for free. We didn't even have to do anything for it. So all that to say, I'm really excited about the tools in this space, like specifically Hasura on GraphQL, on Postgres. Yeah, and what you point out there with the subscriptions thing, you know, one way of looking at GraphQL, the, the way that I saw it presented when it first came out was here is this piece of middleware where you can describe your needs to the GraphQL middleware and the GraphQL server will go out and query the databases that you have. Like maybe you have like five or 10 different databases if you're Facebook or your Netflix or your Airbnb. You have all these different data sources and you've, it's very complex to query these things. And so GraphQL stands in and, and, and federates the queries to the different data sources you have. But you're describing, with subscriptions, you're describing a use case of GraphQL that's useful even if you only have one database. Just the idea that you have this layer over your database that fulfills the subscription API, basically the idea that your your application can be monitoring the changes in your database. This seems like something that would be useful even if you only have one database. It's it's kind of like a an, an improvement to the idea of just using GraphQL for for federation. Definitely, because GraphQL is an API specification, and you know, surprise, surprise, there isn't one at all on the web. Maybe maybe there's you could say Swagger or Open API is, but. I'm not entirely sure. For example, what do I mean by that? I mean, if, if I have a database, right? Just a, just a raw database, nothing on it. And I want to, you know, I want to mess with it. I want to read, I want to update records. I want to subscribe maybe to event triggers. How do I do it? There is not a formal document saying what an API should look like, except the GraphQL document, 
right? And it even handles subscriptions, which Postgres databases support event triggers. So that connection, that conceptual connection is extremely compatible. And that's exactly what Hasura does. And so actually we we use right now, we use, because G2I, we're not that, you know, we're not Airbnb size yet. Um, we, we just use Hasura on one database, mainly for the subscriptions and the API that we just get out of the box. That way we don't have to sit and create an API, it just exists. I'd like to talk more about modern React development and just get an overview for some of the recent changes and your perspective on them. So one is the context API. And I know that the original most popular system for state management was Redux. And I understand that context has uh, supplanted some of the use cases of Redux. Can you explain what the context API does differently than Redux and maybe just give an overview for the problem of modern state management in React applications? Sure, yeah. I don't I'm not entirely sure that the context API has supplanted Redux, mainly because Redux itself used the context like React Redux used the context API um, to provide, you know, a root level store to an to a React app. Um, so the context oh, so API am I, was, am I just totally confused about context being something newer? Possibly, just in that React has had context for a long time. Though the API, you're right, the API was often in flux. It was it was changing until recently. But I think what you're talking about what you might mean is that use reducer has supplanted Redux. That is a statement I would I would get behind. So you know, with React hooks, we have this new hook. It's called use reducer, and it it works by accepting a reducer as input and an initial state, and then you dispatch action actions through a dispatch. So it's very similar to Redux, but it's like baked into React. It's a first class citizen. And that, in, for sure, like in my projects, has 100% supplanted Redux. I was a tech lead at my previous job at a company called Contiamo. And, you know, one of my, really my best friends, his name is Fabian. He wanted to use Redux in a project. And I just basically vetoed that. And I said, no, 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 we got to use use Reducer. Because we're shipping less code that way. We're, we're not bundling. We talked about bundlers. We're not bundling Redux. We're not bundling you know, something like Redux Observable for middleware, and we're just we're just shipping React only. So it's a big win because we ship less code, and that for me is the biggest win. But also, React had this concept of middlewares. If you've worked with Redux, you probably have used something like Redux Thunk, Redux Observable, Redux Saga. And these things existed to allow for, like, stateful side effects inside what is supposed to be a pure store. How do you do that, right? Using middlewares. Now, the problem with these is there were many of them and you had to kind of know some of them to fit into a team that has been using them. So there's already like a barrier to joining a team if you don't know the middleware. And then secondly, some of them just end up unmaintained or they're hard to, like there's trade-offs between them is what I'm trying to say. With use reducer and React, you don't have to deal with any of that because with the new use reducer hook, React also exposes a use effect hook, which is effectively what Redux middleware would do. So React, you know, now ships with use state, use reducer, use context, use memo, use callback. And these hooks really interplay very nicely to make, in my projects at least, Redux not necessarily useful. Right. So you've definitely exposed my lack of uh, detailed understanding of this ecosystem. I wanted to do like uh, a week of shows on React and JavaScript, and I've been doing a, a lot of coverage, and I think I have 
you know, I, I've been touching on elements of the React ecosystem that people care about and hopefully asking the right questions. But definitely as an outside observer, <laughs> there are a number of things that I simply do not understand very well, but that doesn't stop me from asking about them. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked because it helps me understand them too. Right. And so getting further into things that I don't understand very well, but people want to hear about, there are some other new primitives that have gotten introduced into React more recently. So hooks and suspense. Why does React keep introducing these newer primitives for React development? Short answer, because Facebook needs them. <laughs> you know, Facebook, ha it's a huge app, right? And, and there's, there's things that they need to do to make the user experience better. And that's what I want to touch on is like React fundamentally exists to improve end user experience through improving developer experience. So like there's a sweet spot where the pleasantries of DX and UX that is developer experience and user experience meet. And that's effectively why React exists. It's my opinion and belief is to meet at that point and provide pleasant experiences to developers, which it certainly does for me, and pleasant experiences to users through the use of just elegant UIs. Now, you asked about hooks and suspense. Hooks exist they do solve a problem. So the, the problems that hooks solve for developers is that they help us kind of group our stateful logic. So React components in and of themselves ought to be stateless and free from side effects. So stateless and pure. Um, but when that's obviously not going to work if you have an app, you need state such as user input or something. And so hooks kind of help you group your stateful logic. All, then you they, they're this expressive primitive wherein you can say, hey, this is what my state is. These are the side effects I'm doing. And this is something I want to memoize. And you very declaratively state these things and you can co-locate them with your render logic so that your code is easier to read and work with. So ergonomically, it's very comfortable for the developer. For the user, it's kind of unbelievable how monumental the value that hooks bring is um, because the prior art to hooks were these class components with JavaScript classes that were very big and did not minify properly because classes really have a lot of interconnected things and identifiers and so on that you can't easily um, like mangle if you're minifying them. And you also, you can't really optimize classes as well as you can functions in JavaScript. And so because hooks are entirely functional, like they're, they're able to become so small when you minimize them before you ship them to your users, meaning users download less code, get things faster and are happier, right? And so that's the, the value of hooks and suspense is also very similar. Suspense actually hasn't shipped like in its full version yet. That's something we're all very eagerly awaiting in a future version of React where something called concurrent mode will be enabled. And the use case for this, I mean, the developer experience is another you know, in this case, the developer experience allows us to very declaratively state, hey, even if this part of my app isn't ready, show the rest of it and then show a spinner here. Or we could just as easily say, don't show any spinners, wait for everything to load and then finally show this to the user, right? So we have more granular control over what to show to the user when. And so like if you go on twitter.com right now, 
you'll just see like spinner after spinner after spinner. That may not be very nice. And so suspense allows developers to more um, declaratively specify what to wait for and what to not wait for. On the user side, it's also a pleasant experience because you don't really have to look at spinners anymore. Your page kind of loads according to where your eyes meet. So you could, as a developer, kind of say, load things from the top left to the bottom right. And so the users would get that benefit of things loading where they expect them to be. So all that to say, I think React keeps introducing these new primitives. Yes, because Facebook needs them, but also because we need them. Uh, me as a developer, it helps me make greater apps that are high quality and pleasing to my users, but also really fun to work with for my dev team. And you've mentioned that Suspense is this system for helping with asynchronous data loading. And that means it's going to help with user experiences that have variable network connections, for example. Yes. But you also said that there's not really a best practice for how to use it today. Is that true? Like, if I'm a developer, how can I use Suspense today? That's a great question. So I said it wasn't released in its full, like, this isn't even its final form is what I'm trying to say. It is half released and the half that's released you can use in production. We might be using it in production at G2i. So suspense for code splitting is the part of suspense that is released in React and ready to be used. And how that works is you would, for example, if you have a, you know, a website with many different pages, right? Before suspense for code splitting, what would happen is you would kind of just, at least in my case, I just didn't care about splitting my code. And so when somebody comes on tejaskumar.com, they don't just load my initial index page, they load all the pages, even though they don't need to. They just spend that bandwidth, lose that time. Suspense for code splitting encourages the best practice of actually splitting your code. So lazy loading or loading on demand the pages when they're requested. And how Suspense does this is it, you know, you you use a helper from React. It's called React Lazy. And you import a page using React Lazy that isn't really imported until it's needed. And then you wrap your components in this like suspense component that is just exported from React. And you give it a fallback. So you say, hey, in case this isn't loaded yet, show this. And that could be a spinner, it could be a cat GIF, it could be whatever you want. Um, and then when your page is finally loaded, after the user has clicked it and requested it, then it serves you know the user what they want to see. All that to meet the goal of shipping way less code to the user. Just imagine, instead of downloading every route on initial load, you just download one. We've been talking about the different facets of the React ecosystem and how to build a React application today. And one way to summarize how all these things fit together is the Jam stack. It's a useful way to think about applications, I think. But why has the Jamstack changed the way that we do software deployments? Like, I feel like the Jamstack has coincided with the rise of, of some newer hosting providers like Netlify and Zeit. Why is that? Why do users need a hosting platform that is centered around the Jamstack? I think the Jamstack is so popular for the same reason that JavaScript is so popular. And that reason is it's got virtually no barrier to entry. Like if I wanted to start with JavaScript, I open Chrome, I open the console and I write code. Um, and the Jamstack allows you to do that. 
you, you write a JavaScript app. If you know React, you write a React app using some type of API. You don't need to write the API. You don't need to write the database. It's, it's some external you know, interface. And, and the last part is you, you have M in the JFSec markup, which is static generated content. So you, you write JavaScript, talk to something with an API that generates markup for you. And this markup is static, can be served from edge nodes on a CDN and is just, it's, it's this beautiful intersection of approachable, but also incredibly powerful when used um, at scale. For example, Smashing Magazine, right? That's a Jamstack site. And so I think that's the draw. I think that's why so many hosting providers have sprung up because it's it's something with a lot of volume because it's so approachable. So like if there were no hosting providers, you would build Jamstack sites because why not? They're easy. And then you'd be like, oh, okay, what do I do with this now? Right? Where do I put it? Do I start up my own node server or do I go on Heroku and kind of start a server? What do I do? And these companies site Netlify show up and say, hey, give us your Jamstack site. We'll make it, we'll make it happen. We'll even give you like TLS encryption and everything. And so I think that's why it's like, there's this whole bunch of people creating on the Jamstack with nowhere to put it. So that's the problem they solve. What are the biggest gaps in tooling in web development today? You know, I thought about this question a lot. I genuinely don't know. If there is one, I'm sure it'll be filled soon. You know, I hear a lot of people say, hey, I'm sure there's an NPM package for that. That's kind of that's kind of the front end uh, or JavaScript developer joke is there's an NPM package for that. A friend of mine had no internet in his house, like someone had cut the cable. And so what he did in the office, like he was using office Wi-Fi, he typed in NPM install internet as a joke, you know, because he had no internet. Turns out there's an NPM package for that. So gaps and tools. What does it I, do? I have no idea. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I think it's maybe every website that has ever been made. Probably not. I, I don't know. But, you know, I just, I don't know what the gaps in tooling are, man. I, I really, I gave it a lot of thought. No idea. Internet. I'm looking at the NPM package. <laughs> it's a, P is a small framework used to create browser-to-browser -browser networks. Wow. Oh. After a it's connection like is established, the middleman is no longer necessary. No proxies are involved. Okay, whatever. Interesting. I'm glad this guy domain squatted on internet that for NPM yeah. <laughs> uh, with his peer-to-peer -peer networking package. But it looks cool. If you have a shell up and running, if you type in NPX Tejas, as in my name, you'd see something funny. All that to say, there's just packages for everything. There are packages for everything. You are part of G2I, which is a company that has React contracting and works with large companies that need, well, small companies too, that need React developers. If I'm a new React developer today and I'm trying to understand what are the skills I need or what's the basic skill level I need to be at in order to have marketable React talent, how do I know that I have the sufficient skills? So personally for me, how I often find out if I have the skills or not is to interview for jobs, <laughs> you know, and at G2I, that's, that's kind of our business model is what we do is we, we vet, like if you go on our website, it says we vet you hire. It's that simple. And that's kind of what we do is we look at applications from people and tell them, Hey, your skills are marketable. And there's like these companies that actually want you right now. Or, you know, we say, Hey, there's companies out there looking for these things and those aren't necessarily your skills. So it might help you to learn those things. That's kind of what we do is we help companies find the right people, but also we help people find the right skills for the companies, if that makes sense. 
Definitely. But more specific level, is there like some minimum, you're talking about like, okay, the skills I need to interview and, and be successful. Is there some subset of the skills that a superb React developer would have? What do I need to know to be a successful enough developer to get a job? I think to get a job, you have to have an understanding of JavaScript. That's absolutely essential. And basic React. Honestly, like I've seen people get jobs who have learned JavaScript. Usually like there's a book, it's called You Don't Know JavaScript. Great, great book. So they'll read that or do a bootcamp, learn JavaScript, and then read the React documentation. Honestly, top to bottom, the entire documentation. It doesn't, I've done it a few times over. It doesn't take very long. Um, And just literally just based on that, people have gotten jobs. So that's kind of what we're seeing today. But then of course, like that's, that's more for just a, you know, entry level or intermediate react position. The more senior positions require a knowledge of scale and thinking about what to memoize versus what not to memoize. Thinking about how can I reuse this? Thinking about poly, not polyfilling, but mocking things so that they can be automatically tested. And also there's a whole nother topic of knowing what to test, what not to test, what to type and so on. So I think those more nuanced topics tend to be what senior engineers do more, but by and large, it doesn't seem like if somebody knows JavaScript and has read the React docs and has built some type of pet project with React, it's pretty much a shoe in that they'll find a job. To close off, you, what you do at G2I is you help vet people who are coming in. So people who are applying to be a developer at the company, they go through this application process where you essentially screen them. What does that actually mean? What does a vetting process entail? (laughs) You know, that's so controversial. Every time somebody asks me what I do at G2I and I say, I am the head of vetting or I lead the vetting team, I get like the stink eye. Like, oh my gosh, who do you think you are to vet, to evaluate, to judge? Are you a judge? Like, that's that's all I get. It's all hate. Everybody hates me. No, but I. it's not really as controversial as it sounds. And yes, I know it's classic that I would say this as a corrupt politician. But effectively, what we're doing is we're connecting people with companies. And so, you know, a big concern is in our vetting is bias, right? Like you you think, oh, this person's a bad developer because they're from some underrepresented community in tech or whatever. Fortunately, there is no bias that way. Our bias is the requirements of our customers. And so we see our customers saying, hey, I want this, I want this, I want this. And that's kind of what we look for. Moreover, we automate a lot of that. So we, we even avoid like human biases and what the customers really usually want is literally just the React docs. So for example, the React docs will say, this is a good practice, do this. And that is lifting state up, for example, passing state down through props for components that share state. Um, The React docs will also say, hey, don't do this. For example, mutating state directly as opposed to calling use state. Or for example, in, in the case where state maybe asynchronous using the callback setter for set state. So re- the React docs has some strong opinions that we enforce in our vetting as well. But by and large, that's kind of it. It's just like our customers want this. This is what the React doc says. And we cross-reference you know, our, an application's code sample to that 
you know, the React Docs does have some really strong opinions. And that's essentially what we do is we just, we follow the React Docs and the requirements of our customers. And we will cross-reference an application from a user, from, from a developer, from a contractor. We'll, we'll cross-reference their code sample with that. And that's essentially it. That's our vetting process. Tejas, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you. Thanks very much.